Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. We're going to be in Psalm 80 tonight. You guys can take out your Bibles and flip to Psalm 80. And we're still in that kind of section of the Asaph Psalms. And Asaph is dealing with that period of time in Israel's history when, you know, the Lord is really dealing with his people. They're, they're, they're going through the consequences of sin. And that's namely by the hand of the Assyrians, if you were the, the northern ten tribes, or uh, the Babylonians, if you were the southern two tribes. And on Sunday in Psalm 79, we looked at just the devastation of that, really the cost of sin, what it looks like in our lives as we saw uh, the consequences, really the the aftermath of the Babylonian uh, invasion in Judah in 586 B.C. It was devastating. And, And the carnage that was described there in Psalm 79, where there was just blood flowing like water through the streets, and there was bodies littered all over the place to where the birds were pecking at them and the scavengers were dragging them away. There was nobody to bury the bodies. They were so abundant. So they're just chucking bodies over the wall is kind of the historical account. It it was terrible. It was tragic. The Babylonians came in and mowed down the temple. They destroyed the whole city. Uh, But as gruesome of a description as that was, it was vivid and it's good for us to understand that that is a picture of what sin does in our lives. As we looked at Uh, you know, how the temple was defiled there in Jerusalem. We talked about how when our temple is defiled, there's that break in fellowship with the Lord. When we choose to walk in willful disobedience, sin is what stands between us and fellowship with the Lord. Uh, We looked at, you know, the reality that the wages of sin is death. There was death abundantly in uh, in that invasion. We looked at how sin devours even as the animals came in and devoured the dead bodies. How sin doesn't stop. Sin is never satisfied. That once we start to indulge in sin and go down that road, it's never satisfied. We always want more and more and more until uh, there's nothing left uh, to give. And so the Lord warned his people over and over. He warned the north, he warned the south, but they chased hard after sin. And because he loves them, because he cares more about, again, their eternal uh, their eternal safety more than their current comfort, boy, he brought discipline into their lives via the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And although it was difficult and it was, I mean, it was hard for them, it brought about good. It wasn't forever. And that's kind of where we summed up on Sunday is that although it was difficult, the Lord did a work in their hearts They're in Babylon for those 70 years. That thing that tripped them up over and over again for century after century, idol worship, the Lord worked that out of their heart. And he brought restoration through the hands of Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel. And things were rebuilt. Uh, And we talked about the reality that that God is, is faithful. He was faithful to his people. Then he kept his promises to them. And that's a great encouragement to us because we know that he will keep his promises to us, that he will see us through as well, uh, even when things seem difficult, even when things uh, are tough. And he's not done with the Jew, by the way. The Jew still has not uh, you know, come to terms with who Jesus is, and they will deal with those consequences in the future 
through the tribulation. But the Lord will use that. You read through Revelation, you say, oh man, that's terrible, that's tragic. How could good come out of that? Well, the Lord uses the tribulation, that period of time when God pours out his wrath on a, a Christ-rejecting sinful world. He uses that to draw his people to him. So the Lord is at work. He's faithful even when we're faithless, and that should encourage us in difficult times. But Psalm 80, it's right there in that same vein with the, the Assyrian invasion of the north, the, you know, the, the Babylonian invasion of, of the south, the consequences of sin, the ugliness of sin. The difference uh, in Psalm 80 is that it deals primarily uh, with the north. This really is a prayer of deliverance. Psalm 80 is a song. It's a prayer of deliverance, again, primarily for the northern ten tribes. And there are a little, you know, there's some, some debate. There's some questions regarding the timing of this psalm. So there are great Bible teachers that would say the Asaph of David's era wrote this psalm. And it was written uh, in a way that it's prophetic in nature, looking forward to uh, the Assyrian invasion and the captivity of the northern ten tribes. And where that's possible, and as we begin to make our way through this psalm tonight, I, I think you're going to find uh, that it just doesn't seem very likely. Uh, it's a very personal description. It doesn't seem very prophetic uh, in tone. And I'm big into to prophecy, right? We talk about it all the time. The Bible, much of it is prophetic, and we're not going to make excuses for those sections that are prophetic. But when we come up to these portions, I, it just doesn't have that prophetic uh, feel uh, to it. So if it wasn't written by the Asaph in David's day, uh, then who was it written by? It's the Psalm of Asaph. And like we've discussed, uh, many of these psalms were written much later than the Asaph of David's era. And so there's Bible commentators who say, you know, this is just uh, another title for a worship leader. But the most likely explanation is that the descendants of Asaph carried on that name as they continued on in that worship leader role. And so the other options as far as the timing for this psalm being written, uh, not being during Asaph's time, it would be really uh, during the actual invasions themselves. And so there's another idea that this was written just before the Assyrian invasion, kind of as a warning to the northern ten tribes to kind of get right with the Lord. Like, hey, listen, uh, it's coming. Uh, again, possible, but I just don't feel it's very likely. Again, as we read through this, we're going to see just these pleas for restoration. Now, God, why is your anger turned against us? Why, Lord, you know, the, the boars have come in and, and shredded everything in the land. There's this plea for restoration because things have already been devastated. So uh, I don't really subscribe to that idea either. Uh, the other couple options are that this was written after the northern ten tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. But it was written by Asaph from Jerusalem. So this would be before the Babylonians conquered uh, Judah, like we talked about on Sunday. Uh, or, and this is the way I'm going to approach it tonight, lastly, is that this was written after both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were taken into captivity. And I'll explain a little bit why, but I really feel like that is just kind of the, 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 the timeline that makes the most sense, is that it was written from Babylon by Asaph after the ten northern tribes were taken into captivity and after uh, Jerusalem and Judah fell. And so we'll dive into verse 1 of chapter 
80. To the chief musician set to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. So again, the lilies, we've talked about this before, probably uh, a tune that everybody was familiar with. Uh, it could have been a stringed instrument that was uh, being directed to, to play the song upon that. Uh, verse 1, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength and come and save us. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. And so the psalmist starts out with this description of God as a shepherd. And what a, a comforting thought that God is our shepherd. Jesus there in John chapter 10, said, I am the good shepherd. Uh, and again, he is the good shepherd. God is our shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? Well, what is a shepherd's role when it comes to his flock? Well, he leads them where they need to go. First of all, that's the shepherd's job is to, to lead them from place to place to where the food is and to where the water is. And as we look at Israel's history, boy, what an accurate description of who God is to them. As he led them uh, into Egypt initially, remember Joseph didn't end up there by happenstance. The Lord used Egypt as kind of like this incubator to grow Israel into a huge nation. It was perfect for them. But then the Pharaoh changed and politically they were frowned upon and they became slaves and they were there for 400 years. And then the Lord shepherded him out of that situation supernaturally through the Red Sea and the wilderness, through the, the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. When you look at Israel's history, there's no question that the Lord just shepherded them, led them where they needed to go. And the Lord, he shepherds us as well. He really does. He, he, he leads us along where we need to go. He doesn't drive us like cattle. Isn't that interesting? We are sheep. We're not cattle. The Bible never says, and the Lord drove his people, you know, got out the, the prod and shocked them and forced them where they needed to go. The Lord always gives us a choice. He leads us, and honestly, sometimes we are not very leadable. Sometimes we have a tendency to wander off, but still he, he doesn't drag us along uh, like I had to drag my dog along. I was trying to teach him to walk on the leash when he was a puppy. The Lord doesn't drag us. He doesn't drive us. No, the Lord, he, he leads us. And the Bible says that we, as his sheep, hear the sound of his voice, that, that we recognize who our shepherd is. And when he calls, we go where he leads. That's just the natural thing. Uh, you know, there's all these studies, and we've talked about how this works with real flocks uh, of sheep, even in the promised land, uh, where, man, shepherds will gather their flocks together at night, and they'll call, and the sheep know exactly who their master is. It's a neat thing. But the shepherd leads his flock to where they need to go. And the Lord leads us. He leads us by his Holy Spirit, he leads us by his word. As we study through his word, he gives us direction, and uh, he really shows us which way we ought to go. But not only does the shepherd lead his people, but the, the shepherd provides for the sheep, for his people. And man, our God is such a provider, isn't he? Man, our Lord provides for us. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. If you are enjoying anything this evening, boy, it's because the Lord provided it for you, because he's good. Uh, Psalm 23 speaks about 
God as our shepherd. And it says that he leads us beside still waters and into green pastures. And, you know, the idea behind that is kind of twofold. Because sheep physically needed water and grass, and that's wonderful. And we need provisions as well. That's why uh, the Bible tells us that we seek first the kingdom of God. And all the things that we need, uh, our clothing, our food, where we're going to lay our head, the, the, all those things the Lord will provide for us because he's our provider. But not only does the Lord provide for us physically the things that we need, but he provides for us spiritually. That's the other side. The lead us beside still waters and to green pastures has this connotation, this idea of being spiritually led and blessed and provided for. And so the shepherd, he leads his flock. He provides for his flock and he protects his flock. Protection from the enemy. You think about David was a shepherd. The stories, uh, you know, where he would fight off the lion and fight off the bear to protect his flock. And the Lord does that for us. He is our protector. Nothing can touch us unless they go through our shepherd. Jesus said, I'm the door to the sheepfold. And no one comes in or out. Uh, you know, Jesus laid down his life for us. That's the kind of shepherd that we have. That's a pretty amazing picture as we think about the shepherd of Israel and the way that he led and took care of his people and the way that the Lord leads and takes care of us. But I think one of the Biggest things I'm thankful that the Lord protects me from is me. I have the tendency to be my own worst enemy sometimes, to wander off and to get into trouble. But again, in Psalm 23, where it really describes God as a shepherd, uh, David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, the Lord, he uses his staff to beat back the enemy to protect us, but he also uses the crook to get me out of the brambles when I wander off and find myself in trouble. And I'm so grateful for that. That idea of God as our shepherd, man, so comforting. Uh, what a wonderful picture that is. And the psalmist here, he opens up that psalm with, O shepherd of Israel, because again, this is a, a cry for redemption and, and uh, for restoration. Uh, then the psalmist goes into this idea that the shepherd, that God, is the one who dwells between the cherubim. What is that all about? What's being said there? Well, it's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. We've talked about that, that two foot by two foot by four foot uh, little box that was very, very important. It, it, it was the centerpiece of the temple. It, it's uh, really where the Holy Spirit resided in this little golden box. There was the law in there and, you know, some manna and Aaron's budded rod and, and all these things. But then there was the golden mercy seat. And, and then on either side, there were these cherubim, these angel things with their wings. And, and that's where God's presence, boom, it resided. And so this idea of the cherubim, that you dwell between the cherubim, it, it really is a reference uh, to God's presence. Lord, it's where your presence is. And, and that's the idea, is that he's our shepherd. He leads us. He takes care of us. He protects us, uh, but he's also with us, and, and I'm so grateful for that, and the psalmist recognizes uh, the presence of the Lord uh, there with him. You're the one who dwells between uh, the cherubim. That's the presence of the Lord. Uh, before uh, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Now, here's where we kind of get into uh, the timing and who this is for primarily. And again, this is primarily for the northern tribes. So this is uh, to the shepherd of Israel. Uh, Israel is the nation of Israel, all 12 tribes being encompassed. But remember, it also refers to just the northern 10 tribes they took on that name. 
the, when it's making this reference to Joseph, who led Joseph like a flock, Joseph's uh, sons, uh, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're the two northern tribes, big tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh's on both sides uh, of the Jordan River. And so that's another way to say, and we talked about this not too long ago, that these are kind of uh, descriptions of the northern ten tribes. But throughout here, you kind of see the, the mix also, because Manasseh and Ephraim are northern tribes, but what about Benjamin? And Benjamin is a southern tribe. It was Judah and Benjamin that made up Judah. So uh, there's, this is why I kind of lean the way that I was leading. When the psalmist says, restore us, O God, and, and he mentions not only Benjamin, or, or Manasseh, pardon me, and Ephraim, but also Benjamin. So uh, there's kind of that going on as far as the timing and who this psalm is being uh, written to. But these three tribes being linked together, it, it's interesting because... It's not just, you know, primarily the north and throwing a little bit of the south in there to kind of give us a clue of the timing. Uh, these three tribes, they were the one, they stuck together. They camped out together in the wilderness. Uh, remember back in Numbers when it described how the, the tribes would camp? They would have the, the tabernacle at the very center, and then the different tribes would camp around the tabernacle in very assigned places. And, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin, they made it up the smallest group, and they were right at the top, kind of, really, if you, you looked at the, the temple, there was the holy place, and then above it, the holy of holies. And then Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin would camp out close to the holy of holies, right behind uh, the Ark of the Covenant right there, the smallest group. They would make up the top. But then you have uh, six other uh, tribes, equally on both sides, and then three more tribes on the bottom that would make up the majority. They were the largest group. And it's interesting, and we won't get into it too much. I just wanted to kind of point this out because it's an interesting fact, that when you kind of go through the description of how they were laid out, if you were to fly over in a helicopter or get a bird's eye view, they're laid out in the shape of a cross. It really is fascinating. There's been lots of studying that's gone into this, and it really is cool. But it's just one of those layers in the Bible. You're like, whoa, what? Like, as the nation is making their way through the wilderness, they're camping out in the shape of a cross all the time? Like, they didn't even know. Like, come on. I feel like, Lord, you did that for us. That's cool. We could go back and study, and now we know. Uh, but they were all together, and that's why... They're listed together, that when the ark would move, they would kind of follow them. And so Asaph is writing this psalm. Again, it's primarily a, a cry for mercy and repentance and restoration for the north. But the thing about Asaph is that Asaph was from Judah. Asaph was a southern boy. And so why is that interesting? Well, it's interesting because the southern tribes and the northern ten tribes they did not get along with each other. There was a serious beef there. After King Solomon, so there was King Saul, bad king, King David, greatest king Israel ever had, his son Solomon. And after Solomon, the wisest man, boy, there was a civil war. And Israel, the nation, was broken up into two kingdoms. The northern ten tribes were ruled over by King Jeroboam. The, northern, or the southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, they were ruled over by Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And so there was a civil war. They were broken up. And the north, they went off the rails into idolatry in uh, really as hard as they could go. There was such a rift between these two 
uh, kingdoms, the north retaining the name of Israel, the south taking on the name of Judah. There was such a rift between these two tribes that the north refused to come down and worship in Jerusalem. Right? We're going to talk about you know, all of the feasts that take place in uh, Psalm 81. And they were required to make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. They said, nope, we're done. We're not going to come down and hang out with you guys anymore. We're going to make our own temple. We're going to make our own priesthood. We're going to set up our own sacrifices. We're going to make our own holy days and festivities. They made these golden calves and worshiped them. And so there really was this this rift between them. And they fell hard into idolatry. And they chased after it with everything that they had. And the people of the south, they resented the north for that. Well, you've turned your back on God. And in fact, many people from the north moved down to the southern kingdoms. And that's why there's no ten lost tribes, but I won't get into that tonight. Um, But the people of the south resented the people of the north. There was just that thing that was going on. And so when the Assyrians came in and led them captive, it was kind of like, all right, well, there you go. That's what you get. (laughs) We tried to warn you now, sayonara. Good luck. Uh, And it was a brutal situation. Uh, but that's just the way that it was. And, and it went even deeper than that. It, it was before even uh, the Civil War took place. There was tension between the tribes in the north and the tribes in the south. And you remember when they were coming into the Promised Land to begin with, there was the, the, the tribe of Reuben and uh, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They, they, they said, nope, we're not going to go all the way in. Remember, they said, we are cool here on the east side of the Jordan River. And remember what Moses did? Man, Moses like blew his lid. He's like, what? He was furious. Uh, but then they agreed to kind of fight the battles and take the promised land, and they were allowed to, to stay there. But that was a, a kind of something that was not good either. There was great compromise there. When they said, you know, we're not going to walk in God's perfect will for our life. We're going to compromise, and we're going to stay on this side of the Jordan River. And that compromise really followed those tribes all the way through. They were the first ones who were led into captivity because of their compromise. Later on, even in Jesus' day, when they made their way across the Sea of Galilee into the area of the Gadarenes, remember what we found? Boy, that's where Legion was, that man who was possessed by all those demons. There was all sorts of stuff spiritually that was dark happening there in the region of Gad. And when Jesus set this man free from legion, all of these demons, remember they were cast into what? Swine. Swine are not kosher. They, they had no business raising swine there in Gad. And so this, this compromise just kept going and going and going. And, you know, it's another kind of warning for us. There's an, another good application there is that compromise leads to compromise and leads to compromise spiritually. And I'm not talking about the good kind of compromise where you agree to go to the place that your wife wants to eat instead of the place that you want to eat. I'm talking about the bad kind of compromise where you know that you shouldn't, but you just fudge a little bit and and you start walking into those, uh, you know, gray areas. Uh, Be careful of those uh, because compromise leads to compromise. And pretty soon, boy, you're living on the fringe. And and that's what happened to uh, these tribes. And so there was this this great rift between these two uh, tribes. And it went all the way to Jesus' day. Remember when Jesus was going through Samaria? Boy, you know, there's this whole 
shocked that Jesus would go there, first of all, and second of all, that he would talk to the Samaritan because they were half-breeds. When the Assyrians came in, they led them captive. They took them away. They left just a couple people there, and they brought people from all other nations in, and there was this mixed group that was a product of that. And so, really, uh, they were led into captivity because of their compromise and because of, of their sin. And the rift caused the North to say, listen, you know, you had it coming. It's like, you know, have you guys ever seen the people who, like, train alligators? Have you seen those videos? The big old alligators and someone hops on the alligator's back, you know, and they, 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 they hold their mouth closed or whatever. Or they'll, even more to get the crowd riled up, they'll, they'll stick their hand in the alligator's mouth and like, ooh, look at me. And, and then what happens? Whoosh! They get caught in the alligator's mouth. And there's that part of me that's like, oh, man, that's a bummer. There's definitely that arm's coming off. There's no saving that. But then there's the part of me that's like, what did you expect? You play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. And that's kind of the attitude the South had towards the North. So I say all that to say this. Asaph is a Southern boy. Why is Asaph concerned with the redemption of the Northern Ten Tribes that he really could care less about? I mean, by and large, the rift was that bad. Well, I believe, again, it goes back to the timing. I believe that what happened was Babylon. Because 100 years after the northern 10 tribes got taken away into captivity, hooks in their jaws, the Babylonians came in and wiped out Jerusalem and Judah, the description we read about on Sunday. And boy, nothing will cause you to be compassionate towards somebody like going through something that they went through. And I believe that that is the, the thing that really changed uh, Asaph, that made him compassionate, that, that caused him to be sympathetic uh, towards uh, the north. And so this whole uh, letter, this, 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 this cry for restoration and, and redemption, it's coming from a southern boy to the tribes of the north. And that in itself is a beautiful thing that was worth the backstory. Because really that's the heart that we should have in Christ. The people that we have differences with and, and all the rest. And there should be this sweet spot where we should pray for them and want the best for them and pray for restoration. We ought not to be grumpy people who have our arms crossed and say, well, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. Could you imagine if Jesus said that to me? He certainly could have. But man, life is hard. You never know what people are going through. Be nice. And I say that to you because I have to say that to myself all the time. It really is important. And sometimes going through something difficult gives us a soft spot for people who are going through it. On the flip side of that, when you're going through something, man, there is nothing like somebody who's been there before that can bring that sort of comfort that you need. You know what I mean? And when you're going through something and you find something that somebody that's gone through the same thing, boy, there's just this special connection and there's this way that they can just bless you. So when you've been through something, boy, look at it as an opportunity to bless somebody else. And when you're going through something, remember that we serve a good shepherd, a king, a high priest who's already been through all of it. See, that's who Jesus is for us. He is that one who can bring us comfort like no one else can because Hebrews 4.14 tells us, uh, this, it says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. See, Jesus was tempted like we are. So, so when you're in this place of temptation, well, you can run to Jesus and he knows exactly what you're going through. But Jesus did suffer. When you're going through a time of suffering, you can run to Jesus and he knows exactly how you're feeling. He experienced loss. He experienced rejection. He understands our plight because he experienced it. And that really is comforting that we can run to him and uh, he really uh, understands us. So you always have somebody uh, who you can run to who understands what it is that you're going through. Uh, and so as Asaph cries out, uh, really, the song for compassion, uh, we kind of get to the theme of this particular psalm there in verse 3. And we see it uh, a couple times. Uh, Cause your face to shine uh, upon them. And the idea of the face, God, God's face shining upon his people. It's the idea of his presence and his blessing, really, is the idea. And that's what Asaph is asking for. And we'll see that again uh, in, in a couple more verses. This idea that the, God's face would shine. It's a prayer of restoration and redemption uh, for the north. Um, verse 4 continues, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we will be saved. There's that theme again. Uh, but the psalmist here uh, says, O God, how long will you be angry against the prayers of your people? Lord, how long will there be this distance between us? Uh, we pray, Lord, but you're angry against our prayers. We pray and our prayers hit the ceiling. And we've talked about this before. You know, I, I love to point out the fact that the creator of all things, God Almighty, uh, omniscient, omnipotent, uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, all that, that he has the time and that he cares to hear our prayers, and he does. But the other side of that coin is that there are things in our lives that can hinder our prayer lives. It's an important thing that you understand. That, that there are things we can be engaged in that cause our prayer life to suffer. Uh, husbands, when you mistreat your wives, the Bible is clear. The Lord is not having nothing to do with that. Because, man, you can pray until you're blue in the face, but if you're treating your wife bad, you might as well just pray to the wall, mister. Go and make things right with your wife. Uh, if we're walking in disobedience, if the Lord has directed us to, you know, uh, do something and, and we've just flat out rebelled, boy, you know, the Lord has a way of, of not really speaking until we walk in obedience to the thing that he's told us to do. Uh, rebellious, unforgiveness. There's a bunch of things that I could make a whole entire sermon out of and I won't. Uh, but just understand that, that there are things that, that really cause our prayer life to suffer and we ought to be uh, uh, aware of those things. You know, I, I don't like that. I, I want the Lord to hear my prayers. That's great. We'll just repent. That's all you have to do. Just get right with the Lord. And, and again, sometimes we can think that, you know, it's this big process to get right with the Lord. And, and Ron Campbell, man, I love that guy. He said something to me that I will never forget one time. Because we get this idea that when we've walked in sin and, and we've chased after sin, that when it's, it's time to turn to the Lord, man, we have to come all the way back to that place where we began. But Ron Campbell, he said to me one day, he said, you know what, you can, you can walk all the way to China in sin, and when you're ready to repent, the Lord is right there. And isn't that good news? That's it. You can walk in sin, 
but you don't have to walk all the way back. The Lord is ready to forgive. And so just walk in repentance and enjoy that connection with the Lord. The psalmist kind of goes on to talk about boy, we're drinking our tears, just great sorrows. Our neighbors are laughing at us. Remember that Israel was the top dog. In David's day, in Solomon's day, there wasn't anybody picking a fight with Israel. Israel said jump, and they said how high. They were bringing in taxes to Israel. The nations round about were in subjugation to them. And now uh, they've been let off. And the nations are like, oh, yeah, who's tough now? <laughs> they're laughing as Israel's just, it, it's, it's a bad thing. And they're saying, Lord, the sorrows, this is terrible. Lord, re restore us. Let your face shine upon us. But again, there's this remorse. Uh, you can, you know, the tears, they feel bad about what they've done. But there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is when we feel bad. We're dealing with the consequences of our choices. And remorse is good. It's good to feel bad when we've done wrong. But remorse is not repentance. See, remorse is when I feel bad. Repentance is when I turn. Remorse is an emotion. Repentance is an action. Make sure that you don't confuse those two. Sometimes you go, oh, I feel really bad and I'm really... Re well, repentance is when you have changed your course. Uh, important to, to understand. And so uh, the psalmist here is just expressing, man, what a devastating situation it is that they're, they're walking through. Verse 8, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. And so the psalmist remembers uh, just the fruitfulness of, of Egypt. And remember what Joseph uh, was told by God. God came to Joseph there in Egypt, there in Genesis 49, and said, I'm going to make you a fruitful bough. Uh, you know, the fruit is going to be just kind of bursting over the walls. And the idea is that Israel would be so fruitful that they would be a blessing to everybody around them. Uh, many years ago, my best friend, uh, across the street from his house, there was this fence. But on the other side of that fence was this peach tree. And it was a glorious peach tree. Because that peach tree would produce these peaches and they would come over the fence. And really, anything on this side of the fence was fair game. And they were the best peaches I've ever tasted in my life. But that's the sort of fruitfulness that, that's being spoken of. That there's just so much abundance in your life that, that it's a blessing to, to everybody else. And that was God's plan for Israel. To be fruitful. To be fruitful. And that's God's plan for our life as well. That we would be fruitful for his kingdom, for his name's sake. And there are seasons where we say, man, what a fruitful season that was. And then there are seasons where we say, oh, you know, I wish I was fruitful again. And Israel, they're saying, Lord, we want to be fruitful again. We remember, Lord, you took us, you planted us, you made us fruitful. We want to be there again. But there's some things that we need in our lives spiritually in order to be fruitful. There's some things that a vine needs physically to produce fruit. And one of those things is good soil. If you plant a vine or any plant in garbage soil with no nutrients, without the things that need it, well, it's going to suffer. And spiritually, boy, it's the same thing. Good soil. And remember the parable of the sower? And it's all about the condition of the heart. 
It's all about God's word falling on good soil and taking root and growing and producing what? Fruit. Uh, so soil, we need good soil. We need the good soil of our heart. We need to have repentance. So like I talked about, uh, repentance produces good soil uh, in the heart of our souls. Secondly, a plant needs sun, S-U-N. Uh, there's no plant that's going to grow without sun. But we need the sun also. I don't need the sun so much S-U-N because I'm always getting sunburned. But I need the sun, S-O-N, because I need Jesus like nobody's business. And we need uh, the Lord. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world, he said. Uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we'll have fellowship with him and he will forgive our sins, 1 John 1, 7. Uh, not only do we need good soil to repentance, but we need to walk in the light as Jesus walked in the light. We need to walk in obedience. And then thirdly, a good plant, if it's going to produce fruit, it needs water. That's just the way that it goes. If you don't water something, it's going to shrivel up and die. And Jesus is the living water. And, uh, you know, Ephesians 5.26 talks about God's word uh, being uh, water. It's interesting. And so, man, not only do we need to walk in, obe in repentance and, and, and obedience, but we also need the water of God's word if we're going to bear fruit. And then lastly, we need to remember that we need to be rooted in the Lord. You know, we need to be rooted in the Lord. Uh, Colossians 2.7 says that we're rooted and build up in Jesus, that he is our source. Jesus, in John 15, said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And here's the thing. I desire to be fruitful in my life for the Lord, and I know you do too. And we can go through those things and say, oh, Lord, you know what? I just want to be fruitful, and I've walked in repentance, and I've walked in obedience, and I've walked in the word, and we can say, I'm going to produce fruit, and I'm going to. There's no amount of, you know, the apple tree does not, like, I'm going to make an apple. An apple tree just abides. We're rooted in the Lord. It's when we are connected to Jesus that we will bear fruit naturally. Just walk in repentance, walk in obedience, stay in his word, and stay connected to the Lord, and you'll be fruitful for the Lord again. Uh, and so I say that because maybe you're in a season this evening where you're like, man, I remember I used to be super fruitful. I used to be super plugged in, and I long for that. Well, bear fruit again. Get connected uh, with Jesus. Verse 13 The boar, this is where it gets destructive, the boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, upon the son of the man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face, there it is again, to shine upon us, and we will be saved. And so uh, the description, and they've been broken down, they've been ravaged. Uh, you know, this beautiful, fruitful garden now has been tore apart. 
And if any of you have seen the destruction of pigs, and it's a big deal even in our country, I've talked about this, how in states like Texas, you can take helicopter rides with like an AK-47 and just wipe out hogs from the door because they're such an invasive species and they're causing so much trouble. Hogs just destroy stuff. But not just hogs, dogs also destroy stuff. Let me tell you what, because I know what it's like to have a fruitful garden. And have all your flowers looking beautiful and all your irrigation lines in just so. The tomatoes coming up and everything flourishing. And then to have a German shepherd just dig it all up and chew it all up. And you say, Lord, the vine, it was so fruitful. It was so wonderful and now it's just laid waste. That's how Israel was feeling. And things were just burned up. Things were desolate. And again, that is what sin does. That's what sin looks like. And so the cry of Asaph for the northern kingdom is, Lord, come and restore. Let your hand be upon us, upon them. Make us strong for you. May your face shine upon us. It's good for us to, to, to reflect on this psalm. Uh, lots of warning went into it. Uh, you know, don't be living on the fringes. Don't be living in the gray area. Uh, don't be living in compromise. And uh, repent. Return to the Lord. Be, be fruitful again, uh, this beautiful song uh, of deliverance. Psalm 81. Uh, psalm 81 is a, a, a psalm by Asaph again, and it is really a psalm that is sung at the three main feasts of Israel. Israel has the three main feasts. They've got lots of festivals and feasts, but three main ones, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, uh, all very significant. Uh, you guys can check out what those mean on your own time, I don't have the time to get into it if we're going to get through the psalm, so I won't do that to you. But it really is neat. I encourage you to check it out. Um, verse 1 of Psalm 81 uh, says, Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel and the, the pleasant harp with the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon, on our solemn feast day, for this is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob, and this he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt where I have heard a language I did not understand. I removed his shoulder from the burden and his hands were freed from the baskets. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah Selah. And so the psalmist here starts out, again, this is a song that they sing at these feasts. They sang them then, and they still sing this psalm, this psalm today at these feasts. And so it's a song of great exuberance and joy, and that's what it means to sing aloud. Aloud means uh, enthusiastically. They were full of joy and passion. And as I looked at this psalm and thought, wow, that's the way that we are to, to worship the Lord and to walk with the Lord in exuberance and with passion and with joy, I thought, and how are we doing in that department? How am I doing in that department? Is my walk with the Lord filled with joy and exuberance? Can I not wait to tell people what Jesus has done for me? Or am I like, meh, I'm a Christian. You know, I go to church. It's pretty cool. We study the Bible, whatever. I worship the Lord with my hands in my pockets, and hey, it's cool. It's a good song. You know, we're to be exuberant, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, say, well, that's just not who I am. I'm just not a, a super outgoing person, and I don't really get excited about things. Well, is that the person you are when your team wins the Super Bowl? 
Is that your, the type of person you are when you, your team wins the, the World Cup or the World Series or the Stanley Cup, whatever you're into? I bet you it's not. I bet you there's some exuberance. I bet you there's some, some joy there. Is that the type of person you are if you were to win the lottery? And so, you know, we say, oh, I'm not the kind of person. And I'm not saying to be obnoxious all the time, to be, you know, crazy, happy, clappy, goofy, fake, joyful. And I'm really not saying that you ought to be anybody that you're not. But it's always good to reflect and say, you know, how am I doing? Am I, am I shrinking back or am I, am I joyful? Am I exuberant in my walk with the Lord? Because sometimes we can approach our walk like we approach a dentist appointment. It's like, oh, I guess, you know, I got to do it. But that's not the Lord's will or plan for us. There's great uh, freedom and joy in uh, just being exuberant and joyful and passionate. Uh, And why are we exuberant and joyful and passionate? Because we've been forgiven. Because we were headed for hell, and now we're headed for heaven. And it's not because we're good enough. It's because Jesus is awesome. And that should cause, and what I've found oftentimes is when I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to church or whatever. I've lost sight of what the Lord has done for me. And that's why the psalmist gets into this next uh, portion where he says, man, the, the testimony of uh, Joseph. He says, uh, what is it, in verse 4? For the statute of Israel, the law of Jacob, he established, he established Joseph as, for a testimony. And he starts going into the history of what he's done for his people, delivering them out of bondage in Egypt. Well, hasn't the Lord done the same thing for us? They they were delivered out of slavery and out of death. That's exactly what God has done for us. We've been set free from the bondage of sin and given new life. He he goes on uh, past Egypt uh, to talk about... um, Oh, the secret place of thunder and the giving of the law. Uh, you know, the secret place of thunder, that's a reference to when Moses and the children of Israel, they're at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And remember what was going on? There was a, the thunder and the smoke was rolling and everybody's like, we're not going up there, Moses, you go up there. And Moses went up there and what happened? Uh, the Lord uh, spoke to them. That's where they got the, the, the word of God. Uh, man, so important. So they're remembering uh, their deliverance. Important that we remember our deliverance. They're remembering uh, the words of the Lord, how the Lord spoke to them. Uh, Super important. And then they go back and they remember the waters of Meribah. That's when they were complaining in the desert. Oh, this is so terrible. We're thirsty, Lord. Why did you bring us out here? And then Moses he struck the rock and water came out. And that, that rock, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, was, was Jesus. But it's important. Oftentimes when our walk is dry and we're not joyful and we're not exuberant and we're not passionate, it's because we've forgotten. We've forgotten that the Lord has delivered us. We've forgotten the word that he's spoken to us. And, and we've forgotten to be refreshed by him. Uh, go back to that time of refreshing. Uh, that's what... The Bible tells us in Revelation, I can't remember what church it was, but to go back to your first love, to remember, to go back to that place of refreshing where the Lord first um, met you. Uh, it's super important. And so, uh, man, exuberance uh, is a result of uh, remembrance. Verse 8. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel, if you will listen to me, 
There shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would prevent uh, or pretend submission to him, pardon me, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. And so uh, verses 18 through 16 is just kind of, man, if you only would have. If you would have listened, I would have blessed you so abundantly. If you would have walked in all that I had for you, you would have been so, so happy. If you had only listened, you would have been so blessed. And God's will for us today, again, is to obey, to stay close, to be blessed, to enjoy his blessing. There's so many things that the Lord wants to do in our lives. So many things. Uh, don't disqualify yourself with sin. Don't disqualify yourself from not listening. Uh, the psalmist ends with that. Like, man, there's so much that the Lord wanted to do, but he wouldn't because you were stubborn. Uh, let's not fall into that category. There's so much that the Lord wants to do in your life. Don't be stubborn. Walk in all that he has for you. And we're going to pull off one more in 10 minutes because it's a shorty. Uh, Psalm 82, verse 1. It's a plea for justice, a psalm of Asaph. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly? And how partially to the wicked, Selah. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So Psalm 82 uh, is really a psalm to the judges. The men who ruled and reigned and were in charge, making judgment calls in those ancient days. And they were walking wickedly. And the psalmist calls them out and says, listen, you guys, how long are you going to do your own thing and abuse your power? You need to uh, be righteous and, and just and defend the poor and the fatherless and do just to the afflicted and needy and deliver the poor and the needy. Free them. Uh, you know, do what you know is right to do. And that's kind of the, the whole pretense behind this, uh, is that those men who have power, boy, in the sight of the Lord, they're just like any other man, and their power doesn't hold water before the Lord. They're going to die just like every single other man. But the interesting thing about this uh, psalm is that it is quite controversial, and it's controversial because of the language that it uses to describe judges. That word for judges is Elohim, and that word Elohim can be translated uh, to judge, or to mighty, or to goddess, or to lord, or to god and goddesses, or god or gods, plural, pardon me, or to deity. And so there are many people uh, who really aren't Christians, uh, Mormons love this verse right here, because they take it as evidence that says, well look, there are many gods, because that's what the psalmist says here. 
Boy, he uses this word Elohim that can be used for deity, that can be used for God's plural. And he says there are multiple gods uh, right there in, in verse 1 that he judges uh, among the gods. And then in verse 6, I said, you are gods. And they point to this and say, see, there is more than one God. There are gods multiple. And here's the thing. This is why Mormons love this is because they believe that Jesus was a man like you and me. And through works, he became a God. And that we can accomplish that same exact thing. That's what they, they teach. Uh, but see, that's not the God that we believe in, is it? We don't believe in a, a God who was a man and then became a God. We believe in a God who became a man to save humanity from their sins. There's a big difference in those two things. And, and it's confusing kind of when you talk to people like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses because they'll throw around the same terms. You know, we're saved because we believe in Jesus. No, it's by the blood of Jesus. But that's why you have to kind of get to the bottom. The question to always ask is, who is Jesus? Is Jesus a God or is Jesus the God? Is Jesus God? And see, in their translations, they have changed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, uh, and the Word was God. See, they, they changed that to the Word was a God. They, they add that little thing in there to kind of uh, back up their point, and they use this uh, to uh, kind of exactly back up their point and, and stand uh, in this place that there are multiple gods. But there aren't. Are there multiple gods? There aren't. There's only one God. Now, there are many false gods. Uh, the key is false. I'm not talking about polytheism. I'm talking about false gods. That's the key, like Molech, Ashtaroth, Baal, these wicked false idols that we see in the Old Testament. And that's why God says, you shall have no other gods before me. But there aren't gods in the term of, there's only false gods, and then there's the true and living God. And that's why it says in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other, there is no God besides uh, me. Uh, it, it's pretty clear. And so uh, it's important to recognize that, but there are false gods, there is this element of, you know, fallen angels and demons and, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Even it says in Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly uh, places. Uh, there is that element that we are involved in this spiritual battle. There's one God, but there are these other, you know, uh, demonic forces that we wrestle with. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know, it's very easy for us to just kind of latch onto this reality that we live in. We can smell, we can taste, we can touch, we can hear. We have all of our senses that are just kind of in line with this physical realm and reality. But there's a very real, probably even more real than this reality is the spiritual world that is happening simultaneously with this one right here. It's the one that we'll enter into for all of eternity. And we are engaged in a spiritual battle in that. That's why Ephesians 6.12 says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Those things that we wrestle against in our carnal nature, we, like a laser beam, focus on the person or the circumstance. And the Bible says, no, it's not about this. There's a whole spiritual influence behind it of wickedness. That's what we battle. And I want us to understand that as our church, as people, that we're walking in this, this thing. 
that we need to be aware of. It's spiritual battle. Now, I don't want you to leave here feeling like there's a demon behind every bush and everything is just out to get you. And, but I also don't want us, you know, skipping around a spiritual minefield like there's, you know, just oblivious to any sort of danger also. Because the Bible's clear that we are to acknowledge what's going on and that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But the, after uh, it talks about that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, uh, Ephesians 6.13 goes into the armor of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day evil. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we're engaged in spiritual warfare. Those things that trip you up and hold you back and tempt you and, and understand. Take up the armor of God. And again, don't be freaked out like there's, you know, this is on you and we got to fight. And uh, We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Never forget that. He who is greater, he or he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Just remember that. It's important. Uh, and we'll, we'll close with that. So as uh, kind of recap, um, you know, uh, man, it's good that the Lord is our shepherd, isn't it? That he loves us and leads us and takes care of us and protects us. Uh, be careful not to compromise. Uh, be careful uh, not to live in that gray area. Uh, and be fruitful. Man, uh, go to the Lord. And uh, walk in repentance. Have good soil in your heart. Uh, go to the Lord and walk in obedience. Walk in the light. Go to the Lord and, and enjoy his word and the refreshing water. Uh, and remember that you abide in him and you'll, you'll bear much fruit. Uh, walk in forgiveness. Uh, be passionate about our walk with the Lord. We covered a lot of stuff tonight. Uh, but I'm just glad that the Lord loves us. I'm glad he's got a plan for us. And, uh, man, I want to be a people who are just so overflowing, excited about what the Lord is doing in our lives that it attracts people. I mean, who, who wants to just, man, Christianity, I guess, is cool, whatever. I, I want to walk in all the Lord that has for me, for us. And uh, that starts with remembering what he's done for us, walking in all that. So, uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word. Uh, I know that I covered a lot of stuff tonight, and it's, it gets lost sometimes. But, Lord, it's your word, and it's good, and it's powerful. And I pray, Lord, that we would hide it in our hearts, that we would have it when we need it, that we would live our lives according to it. And I thank you so much that you do have a plan for us to be fruitful and, and to walk in uh, your blessings. And I pray that we wouldn't be stubborn and stiff-necked and experience uh, really the, the devastating consequences of our sin constantly. But, Lord, that we would walk in restoration. Lord, and we can because of what you've done for us on the cross. And so, Lord, thank you again for the way that you shepherd us and love us and lead us and provide for us. And we ask that you would do that as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. Dot com.